Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today my guest is Craig Andrews. He is the chief ally at Allies for Me. And today we're going to be preparing a delightful meal, a very veritable smorgasbord. We're going to put the ingredients in front of you. We're going to um, show you in what order and what volume you need to apply them in order to create a really powerful first-time offer and help you to work out a framework for maybe putting forward your own. Craig's business helps businesses create first-time offers. It's more effort than we can put in on one episode. So at the end, what he's done is he's given us access to his program for free for 23 days. And there's very good reason for it. If you don't have a time limit, you're probably never going to do it because people always fill to the time available to them. If you remember when you were studying at school or university, how often you crammed at the last minute, you'll do the same thing with this. So about 21 days after you've picked up the course, no doubt, uh, then you'll actually start using it. But use it quickly. Uh, because it will help you bring lifetime customers. So that's what we're talking about today. Craig, welcome. Well, thank you. It's very good to be here. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Would you mind giving us maybe 90 seconds on your history so we understand how you ended up uh, being in the driver's seat today? Ah, very, very, very interesting question. Very circuitous route. I was what they would not call a model student in high school, And so graduating from high school, I went into the Marine Corps for six years, which was an amazing experience. Worked with some of the best people in my life. And uh, it was a delightful time. But when I got out, I I thought, you know, I wouldn't be an engineer because I want to create and design things. And so I went off and got not just one, but two engineering degrees and landed a dream job designing cell phones, mobile, mobile telephones for one of the three largest mobile phone makers in the world. And I was incredibly bored. I was incredibly bored. And so I thought, well, and I started understanding what makes me tick. And I realized, okay, I need a little bit more creativity in my daily life. And so I started marketing chips for mobile phones. And so I uh, sold um, chips to the world's largest mobile phone makers. And uh, that market, the margin compression, that market took the margins down to zero. And when the margins went to zero, Instead of flying in the front of the plane, I flew in the back of the plane and I thought, you know, traveling in the back of the plane four or five times to Asia a year is not my idea of fun. And that's when (laughs) I branched off and started doing my own marketing. And, you know, it's been an interesting journey because I thought I was a pretty good marketer when I was in the semiconductor space, you know, where the competition was stiff and what have you. And when I ran across some of my old semiconductor buddies, they asked me what I've been doing. And I said, I've been spending the last decade learning how little I know about marketing. <laughs> and, uh, and so in that process, one of the things I had to figure out how to do was sell my own services. And that's why I also discovered that I'm a horrible salesperson. And purely as a matter of survival, you know, the desire to put food on the table and have a roof over the head, I started working on this thing called a first-time offer. And I'll tell you, for 18 months, it was a miserable failure. My first-time offer, nobody understood it. Nobody wanted it. I couldn't give it away. And so I had to keep evolving. And then things started clicking. And after about 18 months, I started having first-time offers that worked. 
then started saying, well, how do we structure this? And how do we make it more powerful? And so over the last, what has it been, five, six years, it's it's really evolved quite a bit. And every time I feel like I've reached perfection, I discover something new to make it even better. And when I say that, I mean, as recently as this week, I've made a change to my first time offer to make it even more powerful, more life-changing when somebody implements it. And what catalyzed that change? I know we'll be talking about ingredients at one point. One of the ingredients in a powerful first-time offer, and I want to clarify, this is if you're selling high-ticket items or complex sales. If you're selling a simple widget that you could buy presumably on Amazon, this is going to be way, way, way overkill uh, for what you're selling. But if you're selling a consulting service or, or anything that would be high ticket, one of the essential ingredients is you, you'll have three to five deliverables. We'll talk about that. But one of the deliverables should be the product of a workshop where you and your prospect work on that deliverable together. And the thing that added was I would go through these workshops and I was a little bit too focused. I was going down my task list. I do this, 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 or this. We'd finish the workshop, say, okay, next workshop is this day and I'll see you there. In my most recent delivery, I paused at the end of a workshop and I said, can you tell me what the biggest thing you got from today is? And he sat back and he thought about it. And my prospect sat there and gave me my value proposition. (laughs) But more importantly than giving me my value proposition, you know, he catalyzed in his own thinking the value that he got from that session. And that's an idea that he came up with, not that I came up with. So it's one that he will own and it will have him walking away feeling like that was a more valuable session to him. Absolutely. I mean, people don't argue with their own information and the stuff that they've got their fingerprints all over, they love. Yes. It's it's a fundamental part of selling to human beings and their brains. What people forget is that companies don't buy stuff. Human beings do. And it's their brain that we have to appeal to. If we're not appealing to their brain, I mean, then, well, one of the things that flabbergasts me, I mean, I, I rail and rant about BANT. My phrase on that is BANT is bollocks, because it's a brilliant system internally, but you use it on a customer and it will flag up a bunch of danger signals in the buyer. The first of which is that you're a self-centered ass and I should do nothing with you. And what's interesting, I learned this week that it actually triggers the disgust centers. When you put a prospect under pressure, you trigger the insula, and that is where disgust and contempt lie. Are those feelings that you want to proactively encourage by training people and marketing people in order to start to try and trigger that reaction intentionally? I didn't know that. And that's, I mean, it makes complete sense. You know, I, I wrote about it here just a few days ago about the unspoken language of sales, where as soon as somebody realizes they're being sold, their guard goes up and you, you don't want to do that. It, it creates, you know, contempt. Uh, it, well, they're disgusted. I mean, it's, disgust. just, it's the kind of stuff that you do to gag in order to spit it out. Yeah. And, yes. and you, you know it because the nose crinkles and it goes up. Um, and they're defending themselves because you represent a psychological threat to their brain. We've got to grow up. In, in sales, 
30 years ago, we were the single source of truth on pretty much anything about their product. I mean, you've just done it. Your, your um, trip to um, wherever, or your uh, holiday or your day out. Okay? Yeah, San Antonio. Right, okay, to San Antonio. You're able to do this entire thing. What? How long did that entire query take you? Less than 10 minutes, a little more than five. How long would that have taken you in the past trying to speak to travel agents and look at guidebooks and then go to libraries? And, I mean, oh, what? yeah, unthinkable. Yeah. Right. Now you're a buyer. Now think about this. Think about the potential that this releases into the hands of the buyer for informing their decision making, for scenario planning, for deconstructing your costs. And, and you touched on something because we believe, and when we, we tell our clients when we're working with them, that one of the jobs of a, an effective first-time offer is to help your prospect make better decisions. You know, they're coming in when they're, when they're making a high-ticket purchase. You know, you think about, so often they are the least qualified to evaluate their options. You are the most qualified to help them evaluate their options but if you're acting like a greedy salesperson or a greedy marketer, they're not going to trust you and they will not be able to benefit from your unique insights that you can bring to their decision-making process. Okay, so let's break down the ingredients first of all then. What, what are the fundamental ingredients to a great first-time offer? Okay, and I'm going to put them into sort of two camps just because that's how they've organized in my head. But an effective first-time offer it has to be an impulse purchase. And by that, I mean the coins in the cushion in your couch, the money in your wallet, or the B2B equivalent of that. Specifically, and we do this a lot with B2B, specifically, it has to be an amount of money that pretty much anybody in the organization can spend and will never be held accountable for it. So if they spend that money and it's a complete waste, nobody's going to hunt them down and say, why did you spend this money on it? So it has to be priced there, and that makes it an impulse purchase. The second thing is it has to deliver a disproportionate amount of value to price. We usually aim for about 10x, 10 times the value for the price. The third thing is it has to solve a problem, because guess what? If it's not solving a problem, it's not delivering value. And you want it to not solve all their problems, because if you solve all their problems, in this first time offer, they'll say thank you, go in their merry way, and you're going to go hungry and broke because you haven't sold your core offer. And you want to naturally lead into the next step. And so that's like one part of the batch of the ingredients. Another part is when you start structuring this offer, you want it to have a minimum of three and a maximum of five deliverables. And I would say that those deliverables should represent milestones that move them three to five steps from where they are closer to where they ultimately want to be. And they have to be able to see that, that when they do this, they are moving closer to their goal. Uh, the reason you want no less than three, less than three is underwhelming. More than five is overwhelming. It, it overloads the brain. It makes it hard to make decisions. One of those deliverables you want to be the product of sort of a workshop often where your prospect participates in the delivery of those deliverables. And so we do these guided workshops where we ask questions and we write down their answers. So when they see that deliverable, 
what they're seeing are the words that they gave to us saying, this is, this is how that goes. And so they have a high level of ownership. It triggers a couple cognitive biases, including the endowment effect and the IKEA effect. And then the last ingredient that I want to highlight is the final deliverable must be the solution to a problem that's created by the successful delivery of the preceding deliverables. Okay, that's a lot of words and that's confusing. Let me give you an example. If you buy a boat, you have a new problem. The new problem is where do I dock my boat? And so if I were in the business of selling boats and somebody came into my, my store saying, I'd like to buy a boat, I would say, you know what, we're gonna help you find the boat that's just right for you. And you know what, once you identify the boat that's right with you for you, you're gonna have a new problem. You're not gonna know where to store it or where to dock it. Well, guess what? We have relationships with all the marinas, all the yacht clubs in the area. And we will, and we know their prices, and we will find the one that's just right for you. So that once you buy your boat, all you have to think about on Saturday morning when you wake up is getting down to your marina with your little cooler of food and drinks, stepping on your boat and sailing on your merry way and having a lovely time for the day. So that's an example of, of selling the solution, also packaging the solution uh, to the problem created by the successful delivery of the preceding deliverables. Which incidentally is the first thing you do after a prospect has agreed to go ahead, you need to pre-sell stages two, three, four, five, and six. Part of the reason why we get fired from clients is because they don't have a clear pathway. And if we give them that upfront, and then every milestone confirms that the pathway that you mapped out is consistent and credible, then they're not gonna resist you for the next uh, five or six stages of selling. They're going to bring you in because they're going to be triggering it and saying, okay, we've hit that milestone. Where do we go next? And that's the kind of relationship we want with our customers, surely. Exactly. So we've got some core ingredients. Talk to me about the syntax. Let's start with at the beginning. What's your intent? Let's start with that. When you're making a first time offer, what's your mindset and what's your intent got to be? And what blind spots do people who get it wrong have? That cause the uh, that cause it to go south. Uh, excellent question. This is where the disconnect starts coming in. The intent of salespeople is quite often to sell something, and I mentioned the unspoken language of sales. There's something that happens in your body language that starts projecting, "I'm going to sell you something," and as soon as somebody realizes they're being sold, their guard goes up, and they become immediately harder to close. And so the intent and the intent of our first time offer is really to serve. And you want this first time offer to help make them a better expert buyer of the services that you sell. You know, usually, especially with these high ticket items, whoever is buying your services, they are not an expert. They're going in and sometimes they play the proposal game. They find three firms like yours ask each for a proposal, and then they compare the proposals. And you're silently saying in the background saying, oh, no, you're comparing on the wrong criteria. You get frustrated because they pick one of the other proposals. 
missing a critical element that you know they should, should have considered. Well, if you stop focusing on selling and focus on making them expert buyers, this first time offer helps make them an expert buyer. And there are some things that we do with new clients that we can't effectively explain in a sales presentation. They don't know they need something. That's why they're coming to us. And again, you will go hungry if you try to sell something that somebody needs, but they don't know they need. They have to know that they need it for them to be able to buy it. And so when you pull them into this process, you give them the chance to start experiencing the sort of the more subtle things that they you know they don't understand. And in the process, they start seeing the value of it. They start valuing it higher. You're making them an expert at buying whatever it is that you sell. And so that they decide to go off. If you get done with this first time offer and they say, you know what, we're going to go look at some other options. That hasn't been something we've run into, but should that happen where they say, you know, we're going to evaluate some other providers. They are now better shoppers of that service. Yeah. And the things that the things that you were hoping they would see that were lacking in the competing proposals, they can now see because you've made them an expert. You've helped them become an expert buyer. Okay. So in order to do that, presumably it means that you need to put in quite a bit of research, first of all, to understand who your buyer really is and what their needs are likely to be so that you can direct your questioning and your discovery or their discovery uh, as they're trying to, they've made space. And now they're trying to learn how to solve their problem. That's where you're really hitting them with this kind of offer, aren't you? One clarification on when you say you have to do a lot of research, you don't have to necessarily do it buyer by buyer. You know, at least in my experience, you know, there are sort of categories. There are broader categories that we often, we build avatars for, where if somebody comes in, you know that they have certain uh, general needs. Now, we personally, we start off any sales conversation we have, we have, we spend 30 minutes asking questions before we recommend anything. And these are very carefully calibrated questions. Some of them are what we call priming questions that kind of prime the brain where we're about to take them. But yes, I mean, you have to know, you have to know what your the problems, the pains that your customer is facing, your prospect is facing. And when we, you know, there's one unforgivable sin when putting together a first time offer. If you miss their most intense pain points, it will fail. This is not something you can recover from. Your first time offer must speak to at least one, if not several pains that they are presently aware of, not pains that they should be aware of, you wish they were aware of, pains that they come in, they say, wow, I am hurting here. And your offer has to speak to those. And one of the traps that people fall into is if you think about their products or services as at some storeroom, they go into the back of the storeroom and they see that they have this stack of widgets that have been sitting there for years and they have dust on them. And they say, oh, well, I'll grab these widgets and I'll throw these into my first time offer. Well, there's a reason they're sitting in the back room with dust collecting on that's because nobody wants them. And so if you go grab these dusty widgets that you've been unable to sell otherwise and package them into your first time offer, it's going to fail miserably. It must speak to a real pain 
that they're having. And that's where you want to do your research. As a matter of fact, we were doing a workshop about 10 days ago, and it was a continuous series of workshops. And, you know, went into this workshop thinking, okay, here's where we are in the process. We're going to move forward. And we did about an hour of work. And we put together a problem statement. And when everybody looked at the problem statement, they said, you know what? That's not something our customer would say. And so we had to go back to the beginning and restart identifying new pains until we had a new problem statement that we threw the problem statement up and everybody said, yep, our customer would say that. And if we had moved forward with that first problem statement that, you know, we use the problem statement to launch into actually starting to build the first time offer. If we had started with that, we, we could have come up with something, but it would have never sold because it wasn't speaking to real pain. And that's where that research comes. And you heard me say that, you know, this is a multi-hour process when we're putting these things together. This isn't us sitting around like, you know, an episode of Mad Men where, you know, you you stare at the ceiling and you grind a little bit and out comes this magnificent idea. No, it, it's, it, is, it is work, it is thought, it is empathy, but it's also understanding your customer well enough so you understand the pains they have and you start mapping out a a plan to take away their pain. Okay. So we've got to co-develop a plan with the buyer, ideally. And the, the first time off a workshop is really helping them to design that solution, isn't it? That's what you're saying. Well, and here's here's where things get muddled. So yeah, so this first time offer workshop, we're actually helping somebody make a first time offer. And we have them involved for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is they know their customers better than we do. Uh, you know, we understand general human behavior. And the reality is we can't build a first-time offer for them without their deep insights into their customer. But if we step this back and say, uh, we talk about a workshop that you would normally put into a first-time offer. A good example, uh, we're going to do this chat GPT for sellers. It's going to be, a, there's going to be a workshop related to that. So okay. structure that workshop. What would you suggest in terms of that framework? Okay, so chat GPT for sellers. And let me just kind of step back and make sure I understand what we're talking about. So what your so your customer are people that want to sell things. And what you're trying to do is equip them with take chat GPT plus them, give them some skills that when they and chat GPT and these skills come together they can sell more things. Is that? Yeah, so, yeah absolutely. So they're interrogating it well. If you want better answers, get asked better questions, the basic premise. And if you ask ChatGPT bad questions, you're going to get bad answers. It's, it's just a machine that goes out and finds answers. If you inform it well with good questions and you use good imagination and you think laterally, you think you use it to provoke thinking instead of just feed you answers, then you're in a position to use it really powerfully. So I would imagine that if you've been working on this, you probably have a list of prompts that you know very, very well that you know will be effective. Mm -hmm. And so the difference between workshopping it with them versus giving it to them, if you gave it to them, you would give them the list of prompts. Mm -hmm. If you workshopped it with them, you would know roughly what the prompts would look like at the end of the workshop. And you would start asking them questions to where so they, they come up with a prompt. So they come up with a prompt. Right. Okay. 
And so you're basically guiding them down that avenue to discovery. So they they get to experience the delight of discovery. And presumably you're doing this live with ChatGPT yeah. there. And so they're able to say, well, you know what? When you frame it that way, here's how I think I would change the prompt. I think I would change the prompt to this. And then they type it in and they see it deliver something insightful. Well, they now have this sort of sense in their head that that was their prompt that they came up with. Yeah. It delights them. They have a higher sense of ownership. And this is where we we start triggering the endowment effect and the IKEA effect. They now value it more. And as they move forward, you know, as they are considering the path forward, if you give them a list, uh, a list of prompts, hey, here's here are the top 10 prompts every salesperson should be using, which is actually not a bad, I hate the term lead magnet. I really do because it's so mercenary, but that's sort of the industry term. We call them conversation starters. You know, you could give that as something to kind of draw them in, but the difference is you give them a list of prompts and in their brain, they subconsciously say, well, maybe these are good. Maybe these are not, but I know my customer better. And so then they start ignoring those prompts. When you can take them into a guided workshop and you know the questions to ask, you know, you can put up the, uh, I don't know how bowling happens in the, in the UK, but in the US. Yeah, the gates or um, fences. Yeah, yeah, we call them bumper guards. You know, you put up the bumper guards to make sure the ball stays in the lane. And that's sort of your job in the workshop. Is You've to make sure watched the... me go bowling, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your job, your job as the workshop facilitators, make sure the ball stays in the lane. Yeah. Their job is to get it down the lane. Right. If you want to change their life, if you want them to implement this in a way that benefits them and benefits society, you can't tell them what to do. You just have to put up the bumper guards and guide them down the path to where they start doing it. And all of a sudden, these are their thoughts. They value them more highly and they're bought in to the future steps because it was their idea. And can you just define the endowment and IKEA effects for people who are not familiar with them? Yeah, so endowment effects is the, um, we value things that we own more highly than things that we don't own. Uh, and one of the famous experiments around that is uh, happened at Duke University here in the United States when basketball, and Duke is a great basketball school, and the students will camp out on the lawn to wait in line for a chance to be put into a lottery to win a ticket to a Duke basketball game. So they went to two groups of people who, one group was people who camped out on the lawn to wait in line to get entered in the lottery and did win a ticket. The second group was the same uh, people who did the same exact things. They camped out on the lawn, waited in line to get entered into the lottery, but they did not win a ticket. They tried to buy tickets from people who won them. And I forgot the precise price, but the the price, the acceptable price was over $1,000. Hmm. And then they tried to sell tickets to people who did the same behavior, but did not get the ticket. And the market price was only a few hundred dollars. Hmm. So it was more than a 3x multiple difference between the two prices. And the only difference was people holding the ticket found it more valuable than people who wanted to hold the ticket. <laughs> and so when somebody creates something on their own, it's now theirs. They own it and they're going to value it more highly. Right. So that's so, one. 
So putting these offers together requires a deep understanding of human behavior and psychology. Yes, yes. Sorry, I, you were about to say something. I just wanted to clarify. The other, the IKEA effect was something that IKEA discovered by mistake. And they, you know, they were just trying to figure out how to put furniture in people's homes. And it made sense to them that they're going to sell unassembled furniture, put it in boxes that can easily be loaded into vehicles, most vehicles, and shipped off to the home. And what they discovered was when people took this box furniture home and then assembled it, their perceived value of the furniture was higher than the furniture was really worth. And the difference was that they had invested effort into the construction of that furniture. And because they, they had invested effort into the final product, their value of that final product was actually higher than it truly was. Right. So it's the investment of effort that is really key in a first-time offer on behalf of the customer. Right. If you do everything for them, they're not going to value it. They have to participate. Right. And that's a little counterintuitive because if you're if your desire is to serve, you want to say, hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to take care of all this for you. But if well, your desire is to change people's lives, uh, you have to do this in a way that will actually change their life. Actually, I challenge that because what you defined there, I would define as rescuing. Re oh, rescuing is helping without boundaries and or permission. And if there is no boundary to how far you will help, then people will push to find one. And that's where you end up with very dissatisfied relationships because one side feels hard done by and the other side feels a need to get even. That's not very good for long-term client relationships. Okay, this is really interesting because not only are we um, having to explore the world through the eyes of your buyer and think as your customer, uh, but you also now need to be a student of some basic human psychology. I mean, none of this is particularly rocket science-y. And God knows there's enough uh, information out there to be able to make a relatively well-educated guess. So my next question is, when you're going into these uh, kind of conversations, when you're positioning the first-time offer, what's the, in, uh, the inner dialogue that you have to have with your own people and your own management so that we can at least give this a fighting chance of working before they say we're spending all this money and we're not getting anything back in a hurry. Yeah. So the, for it to work, you have to remove the sales element, which sounds bizarre considering, wait a minute, this is the whole pursuit. We're trying to sell something, but we go back to that whole unspoken language of sales. When somebody is walking into a sales call and they have a quota in mind or their goal is I must close this deal their body language changes and their, their tone of voice changes and their prospect picks up on it. You get reflect so, out, reflected back what you project out. Yes. And so we see these uh, first time offer more as a sorting exercise, a sorting and filtering exercise. You know, so when we put together a incredible first time offer and we present it to someone, if they are in the market for that, and there's someone that's ready to take action, the only conceivable answer they will give is yes. If they say no, you're talking to somebody who is either not serious, they're, they're kicking tires, or they don't have budget, or they're not, you know, that for, for whatever reason, 
they're they're not ready to move forward. And so the the challenge is to have your sales team going in there and not try to sell. Just present, let the offer do the heavy lifting. And there's a couple ways that you can do that. One, I'm actually horrible at sales. I hate selling. I hate putting on you know the pressure. I, I just don't do it well. And so what you know what led me down this path was the ability to create a really powerful offer that if I'm sitting in front of a truly qualified buyer, when I present that offer, they're going to say yes. I don't have to do any work. I just present it. Okay. Well, I'm I'm just going to have to pick up on something and then beat you around the head with it because that is not good selling. That that is transactional selling. It's short termist and um, it's the kind of selling that's given the profession a bad name. Real selling is exactly as you're describing it. True, you know, if you're selling something that is high ticket and is strategic, chances are the person whose signature goes on that agreement is very aware of the consequences of making a bad decision. They need a seller who has their back. Service is not servitude. And I think many people mistake the two and confuse the two. And um, they become fawning and they become uh, overly helpful and they don't establish clear boundaries. We need to establish equal business stature with our buyers. We need to establish a clear outcome that we're both working towards. We need to partner in this. And that means their fingerprints have to be all over the solution. So I agree in principle with everything that you said. I'm just picking up on the terminology used because that, that to me is really bad salesmanship. Right. And, and, and yes, so the pressure selling, why, why would you do that? You're just going to fire off that brain in all the wrong way. Right. And the, you know, and so in terms of the boundaries, something we, we, we don't share very often is when we get to the end of, um, we actually, we actually close in one conversation. Mm-hmm. And if somebody turns down their first time offer, we don't chase, you know, so the boundary we, we place, we don't tell them because that's pressure. But if somebody turns down our first time offer, we do, we actually have zero follow-up sequence at that point. Mm-hmm. And the and and there have been times where I question, is that the right thing? Is that the right thing? And there was one time in particular, we had this client. It was a he had been a former client that had been a different company than he was presently working. And the when we had worked with him before, we tripled his revenue in 18 months. And he left that company, went to a new company, and he wanted to bring us in to have them, you know, to help them with their marketing. You know, so hopefully they would, you know, triple the revenue of this organization in 18 months. And uh, he kept asking me for a proposal. And I said, you know, Chris, we don't do proposals. Uh, I said, that's something that's changed since we worked together last. I said, we do this little mini project at the front end. And by the way, that mini project helps us inform what would go into a proposal if we were to do a proposal. But it would be impossible for us to even know what would go in there without doing this mini project. And he um, he said, well, could you put the cost of the mini project into the proposal? I was like, Chris, we're not going to do that. I said, here's the mini project. Either it's something you want to move forward with or not. Either way, that's your choice. And he looked a little bit sad and walked away. And sure enough, you know, we didn't get the sale. 
And I, I looked at that and I thought, you know, that should have been a slam dunk sale. You know, we, he was coming to us as a repeat client. We had made him extremely successful before. That seemed like that was something that should have closed. And I wondered, did, did I do the right thing there? Well, six months later, I ran into Chris and I said, hey, Chris, whatever happened with your marketing? He said, well, you know, the president of our company had um, a friend who did marketing and he ended up being the one uh, that we hired. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I realized, oh, okay, there was a third horse in this race or a second horse in this race that I didn't know about. And this was a horse I could never outrun. The friend of the president of the company was always going to get the business. And I would have invested 20, 30 hours putting a proposal together for him that would have failed because I'm not the friend of the president of the company who had already determined that they were going to use that one. And so there's an example of a boundary. And when when people have turned that down in every single case, when I've reflected back when one of our first-time offers have been turned down, there hasn't been a single case where once I had enough information, I realized, oh, you know, we could turn that around. So that would be some of the boundary uh, that we we have in place. And and you heard that in the conversation. Sorry, Chris, no, I'm not going to give you a proposal. It would be ill-informed at best. We're going to do this mini project and you'll get a lot of value for it. And if you decide to move forward, it will help us know what it is that we need to do for your organization anyway. I can't resist the temptation of maybe just deconstructing that with you uh, and giving you an alternative that might be uh, an option. Uh, no, please. Game. Okay. So my response to that would be, uh, Chris, we don't write proposals, but there must be a reason why you're asking. Do you mind telling me why that is? Ah, yeah. And that would surface that information, presumably. Well, potentially, but what? Um, it's not the answer itself. It's how they answer. You're looking for the physiological response. The, um, when the meaning of a question becomes clear, you're looking for the physiological responses within seven seconds of the meaning becoming apparent to the uh, the listener. And when they get that, that gives you clues as to where you need to look next. And that's what I'm interested in, because he may well be very guarded, but if he has a sharp intake of breath or he pulls back or his tone cracks, it gives you indications that maybe there's something that's worth digging deeper into. And at that point, it may well be that there's another angle uh, avenue, which is, well, look, um, if you're going to present this to your president, chances are he's going to ask you to go out and find two or three other people, or he's got other people in mind. Who would they be? Okay, why is he bringing them in? And then what we can do is maybe come craft another little first-time offer that's within his budget that doesn't look like marketing, uh, but could be something else. Interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. that's interesting perspective. Um, it may or may not be appropriate. I mean, if you just want to stick to your knitting on what you're offering, but if you're a consultancy, um, I, I, I like seeing if there are other alternatives um, that we could play with. Yeah, and and the and that's something I you know I went and ponder you know I went and ponder a bit and process on the there's when I talked about the three to five deliverables. The um, one of the reasons, and the, and there's like a lot of layers, you know, as we try to unpack it, and, and it would be impossible for us to unpack all the layers in our short time together today. But one of the reasons that you want to have three to five um, deliverables is obviously it's three to five milestones that move them closer. Uh, the other 
reason is maybe of those three to five deliverables, certain ones resonate more with one audience, certain ones resonate more with another audience. And generally, we want every single deliverable to be at least worth the cost of the entire package. And so if you list out the three to five deliverables, and let's say in Chris's case, he says, you know, I don't care about number one and number four, but my goodness, two, three, and five, absolutely I want. And so the 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 problem, and this is something that I see people doing is they try to go out and they, for a complex sale, they try to have a first time offer that has a single deliverable. Well, if that single deliverable doesn't resonate with your audience, it fails. And, and, and it's really hard to recover because you've you're out over your skis there with that offer. And they're like, sorry, not interested. And now you're scrambling to try to pull back. And so the three to five serves a purpose in making sure that you have hopefully, you know, hopefully at least a couple things in there that when they look at, they say, well, if I just got one of these things, that's worth the price of all this. And I definitely want that one thing. Well, I, I suspect if it's like most organizations, and I don't see why they'd be any different, they don't really know what the real problem is. So the idea of being clear about what the milestones are without help is it's almost laughable that they're going to have that already. They'll have had to have done a lot of reflection. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll have to have a team that actually communicates with one another and puts the customer at the heart. Very few organizations can start, you know, come out the starting blocks uh, with that uh, kind of environment. So I imagine quite a lot of this is cultural as well. There's a bit of culture change that goes with this. Culture change, but also, you know, so something you said was they don't know what they don't know. And that kind of ties back into what I was saying that a part of the, you know, part of what we're trying to accomplish here is to make them an expert shopper of what they're consuming. And so when you take them through those things, all of a sudden they say, you know what, I never thought about this. And that's typically what we're trying to achieve in one of our our workshops. And so one that was running through recently, you know, we often do something, we call it a transformation framework, which is a messaging framework. So, so many people try to sell what they do. They don't sell the transformation that it delivers. So in one of our workshops, we help somebody map, you know, for their ideal client, they map the transformation they deliver to that client across what they have, what they feel, what their average day is like, and their status. And we always emphasize that when you can transform someone's status, that's really where you're going to make your money because, because people pay more for a status change than the other, uh, than the other areas. But in the process of going through that, they trying to explain that on the front end of what it really means and what it really looks like is is difficult. And so just Tuesday of this week, I went through one of those workshops with someone and we got to the end and I said, so how would you use this? And he, you know, and he's, and this was kind of that reflecting and he mirrored back the value to me. And, and I, I said, well, you know, just looking at this one sheet that we did here today, I could see a number of email campaigns. And he said, you know what? You're absolutely right. He said, I had this vision of, I was going to start emailing my list every two weeks. And then I started running out of ideas 
you know, of what to do. And so I'm looking at this and all of a sudden I see a whole campaign of emails mm-hmm. that I can put to work. So back to tying this back to the, they don't know what they don't know. If I had told them on the front end of this, Hey, at the end of this exercise, this is going to, this will give you ideas for your email campaigns. I don't know if he would have understood it. I don't know if he would have believed it, but then going through the process of actually working through it together, that's where he became an expert shopper and started seeing the value. It's really interesting because one of the things that I teach my clients is that you're not trying to sell to them. You're teaching them how to buy. Um, And your job is to make that as straightforward as possible and as clear as possible and only create the friction that's going to help them. So this is where you give them homework. This is where you give them challenging and difficult, provocative questions to wrestle with, because the the more engaged they are in that side of things, uh, the more likely they are to see you as an ally. And your job, number one job in sales is to make sure the other person feels comfortable with you, human being to human being. Because the moment they don't, their amygdala fires off and their defenses go up. And you're automatically a threat. So you're outside, you're not inside. You're one of them, not one of us. So I see our number one job is making the other person's brain comfortable with us and our brain and make sure that we're on the same page. So it's us and them kicking into an open goal uh, against their problems. So we become their ally, which uh, again, is a very neat segue uh, to wrap things up as we're coming close, given what you do, which is effectively you're you're turning customers into your allies. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and let me circle around something. Let me dial back like five, five to seven minutes in our conversation. When you were talking about getting people out of sales mode. So I I talked about one way. There's actually another way that can be a very effective tool. If, If you have some, you know, tuned up salespeople who walk into work and think my job is to sell, you know, trying to remove that unspoken language from their body language of, of sales a simple policy change that they can tell their prospect when they get on the phone with them or in the meeting. And they say, well, what's it cost? You know, what, you know, can you sell me kind of like, uh, and, and while well, you challenge this, but it was kind of the same concept of, can you sell me your core product? And if the sales team says, look, I'd love to sell you that we're not allowed. Our company policy is we must do this you know, a little discovery project together or do, you know, whatever it is that becomes the first time offer. That's our first engagement. Look, I'm a sales guy. I would love to sell you our, our high ticket item, but all we're allowed to do is this. And so that kind of shifts their demeanor a little bit, shifts their goals, realigns their thinking to hopefully subdue that, you know, unspoken language of sales. Well, again, that speaks to certainty. It, it tells them we have a process. This is the process that you have to go through. Uh, and it, it's not about justifying or defending, although it's probably a good idea to say that experience has taught us that over 30% of customers churn if we haven't done this uh, step. Um, and that serves no one. Would you like to play uh, the lottery with um, the two and a half million dollars that you're just about to spend? Okay, well, why don't we just take a little step back and slow down? Yeah, no, that's great. Very well worded. Yeah. Okay. So I'm really curious because you've put in the research, you've framed it, you've spent time 
with your customers uh, to try and understand what it is that really matters to them. You've helped them create, at least in their minds, some um, three to five milestones that they may not have been clear about uh, before the conversation. And each step will deliver value, but also create the problem that the next step will uh, resolve. What about in terms of the after the offer has been made? So let's go to first use. So when they first use it, what are the conditions that must that they must experience at first use? I am sorry. Can you help me understand that question a bit more? So I've just bought your first time offer. Yes. I've logged into your program and the clock is now ticking down for 23 days. Yes. What does my first experience need to be so that I don't end up with buyer's remorse or regret and I don't churn? Oh, well, the you mentioned the challenger sale earlier and yeah. the you know one of you know, at least in my understanding of the challenger sale is one of the reasons that challengers do so well is the they add value they add value to their prospects lives and it's valued beyond just you know buying them drinks or you know taking them out for entertainment they they learn something that's going to, that's changed their fundamental view of the world and how they're going to attack things. And so as quickly as possible, you want them to have an aha moment, you know, as, as they would describe in the challenger sale where they realize, Oh, I had never seen this before. And that's the point where all of a sudden you move from being one of many to the one and only you have brought some unique value. You've changed their view of the world in a way that they can never unsee it. They can never unring that bell. And they, and, and you're the one that brought that to them. And all of a sudden the value of you in their life just shoots through the roof. So Craig, tell me this, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Craig age 23. What would you whisper in his ear uh, by way of advice? He would have probably have ignored yeah, you know that that kind of, that ties back into my statement at the beginning of this when, when I said I've spent the last ten years, um, last decade, over a decade now, learning how little I knew about marketing. <laughs> Let me say this because I certainly walked down this path. A lot of my failures in sales and a lot of the things that brought pain and consternation to to me and my family was I thought I had to be somebody that was not me to sell. I took various sales training, did these various things, and and we'd go out and do things that made me fundamentally uncomfortable, and I was bad at it, and they failed. And so if I were to go back, I would go back and I would say, Craig, you're best at being you. Quit trying to be someone that's not you. So if if whatever training is telling you to be somebody you're not, don't be that person because there's Hordes of people that are better being that person than you. And if you get into a competitive sales situation with them, they're going to win at being themselves way more reliably than you're going to win trying to emulate them. Well, this is why I've restructured the way I train and deliver training, coaching, and mentoring. Because 
most training is bought badly. It's implemented badly. It's implemented for the wrong reasons. Um, what's measured is all uh, measured wrong. I mean, who gives a damn how many people complete or how many people manage to complete 10 questions of multiple choice at the end if the training doesn't change their performance and improve results? So most training is taught as technique, but that's not the real world. The customer hasn't got your playbook. And if you use the technique inappropriately, in the wrong way, in the wrong context, at the wrong time, you sound like an ass. So you're absolutely 100% on the money. You've got to start by being authentically yourself. And the technique is a framework. It's a, it's a bunch of scaffolding for you to know the kind of things that need to be done. But the moment you start trying to sound like someone you're not, the other person's brain fires off that you're a threat because right. you're inauthentic. Okay, tell me this, best mistake. What was the best mistake you made throughout your career? And at the time, it was probably felt quite catastrophic. But as you look back, you think, thank God, glad that happened. Best mistake, yeah, that's actually easy. So back when I was initially working on building and understanding first-time offers, you know, so like almost everybody on the planet, I've, you know, um, you know, Sir Isaac Newton said, if I have seen further uh, or farther, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. And certainly I'm staying on the shoulders of giants. Mm -hmm. In 2017, I was starting to play around with this. And that's when I was having horrible failures. At the same time, I had too many eggs in one basket. And we got fired by a very, very big client. And the you know, the nine months that followed that were hard. Yeah. They were absolutely brutal. Yeah. And and it's certainly not something I would have ever signed up for. But the what it did, the intensity and the focus it took for me, you know, so it was no longer optional. Getting this thing right, getting this first time offer right was lost its luxury of time. And so I had to really drill in and really figure it out. And, and that would be, <clears throat> that would be it, I, I think, it, because uh, it's, it's made such a difference to my business. It's made a difference to the relationship I have with my wife. Those were hard times. It wasn't, wasn't the most fun time of my marriage. And, you know, and, and it's interesting since then, you know, you you know a little bit of my story. I I took quite a tumble about 18 months ago. You know, I was in the hospital for three months and I was out of work for five months. That year was still, I think, one of our best revenue years on record, even though I wasn't working for five months. And part of that's because I have an amazing team that just kept on firing when I was unconscious and fighting for my life. You know, I had somebody named Levy, uh, several, uh, and I had 1099, you know, contractors, uh, sorry, using a U.S. phrase here, but I had contractors that stepped up and approached my team and said, as long as Craig's in the hospital, we'll do whatever it takes. That's a testament to you and the relationships that you build. So, so that's, uh, and I think that's probably a longer story that we have time for now but would be a good lead into the next episode that you and I do. So how can people get hold of you? 
So you can come to our website, alliesforme.com. That's spelled A-L-L-I-E-S, the number four, me, like me, myself, and I.com. But we also own almost every misspelling of that. So you could type in almost anything and it will land there. Uh, so you can come in, uh, come in there, contact us. We're like most marketing agencies, our website is not following all the practices that we recommend, but we'll be working, we'll be working on that. But there is a way to contact us. Um, we're looking at improving that way of, of contacting us and engaging us. That would be the best place to do that. Okay. And you've very kindly placed uh, given us an offer for the listeners. So would you mind outlining that, please? Yeah, so we have a little online course called How to Build Your First Time Offer. If you go to the, the link that you'll uh, you'll provide. It's in the blurb. It's, it's in the blurb. in all the copy, and it'll be in the comments wherever we place it. Okay. So go to that link and just sign up, and you will get 23 days to our online course. And the reason we're putting a cap on it is... We know if we if we gave you unlimited access, you would never go there. You would sign up, you'd have it there, and it would be permanently on your task list of next month, I'm going to go take that course because it sounds pretty good. We're in the business of changing lives. We know that that will be your behavior if, if we put no limit on it, and you will never do it. Your life won't be changed. Lives of your customers won't be changed. We're in the business of changing lives. And so we're going to put a 23-day limit on it because that improves the probability that you'll go in and actually put these principles to work. Because when you do this, you're gonna be serving your customer better. You're gonna sleep better at night. You're gonna feel better. Uh, and in my case, I have a better relationship with my wife because this is what I do. Excellent. Craig Andrews, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Get in touch with Craig, contact me. My email is marcus at laughsiphonlast.com. Now, if you're a principal seller and you are sick and tired of being asked to stretch your values in order to succeed, and you're being asked to put your customers under pressure, it doesn't really feel authentically you and you maybe want a coach who can help you navigate how to succeed without compromising your values or selling out, then please do get in touch. There's a link in the blurb and uh, get in touch via LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.